Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. We often talk about the common threads in the backgrounds of the most notorious killers in Australia in the 20th century, namely early childhoods in which they experienced neglect and violence, followed by periods of sadistic abuse in youth detention centres. When Glenn Fisher was a teenager, he was placed into the custody of the Derrick Training Centre for Boys in Sydney's Penrith. Derrick Training Centre for Boys has been described in the years since as a paradise for pedophiles. And while that's unfortunately the kind of headline we've grown used to in Australia, there is an even darker element to this story. Derrick, a government-funded centre, was the epicentre of a coordinated pedophile ring. Glenn Fisher has seen several of the worst offenders associated with Derrick convicted, but he's not finished yet, and he joins us to tell us his story. So I had three siblings younger than me, two brothers, one sister. Very early, I remember my parents had a guy named Pat Chase. He was uh, a predator, and um, he was my dad's best friend. And from my understanding, there was a bit of children swapping going on. Like I have these recalls of laying on top of his daughters, you know, being naked in backyards and tents and... Um, I, be, I remember Uncle Pat being there. Does that mean, do you think your father was, was a predator? Yeah, no, he was. He was convicted. At the age of seven, I came home from school one day and there was a bull wagon out the front of my house, a, a police car, a, and um, my dad was being taken to jail. He'd been charged with a serious crime. And so that was the day my mother took us and us kids into a place called Lewisham, an orphanage, and dropped us off. And she was put into a place in Ride, a psychiatric uh, place in Ride, so... Yeah, that's where it sort of began. My brother and I stayed in that institution. Well, we stayed in there only for about four months. They moved us to a place called Stewart House for respite for two weeks, and then they took me to an orphanage with my brother next in age. We stayed there for the whole duration of my dad's incarceration. And then we were returned to our mother. Problem was, mum was still living in the same house in Mount Druid in Shelby, but she'd now turned back to partying days. So she was full on drinking and partying, just doing all that stuff. Dad had actually stopped drinking, 
but he shacked up with the next door neighbour, her and her three kids, and then so they moved up to Hornsby. It's insanity, but he, for some reason, not only was he allowed to get us out, but he was able to go and get uh, with another woman who had three children as well. So when I turned nine, I was abused by my uncle Pat in our bedroom. That 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 assault was very brutal. And to be honest with you, at nine years old, I didn't quite comprehend what had happened to me. I just knew it was hurt, and I remember the the physical aspects of what what happened as well. But I was moved to my dad's at the age of ten. My mum sent me to live with my dad. He'd now moved to the Central Coast in Gosford. I always got dinner with my dad, but my dad had a a very cruel side to him. Like he would make me something like. Uh, steak and kidney or cabbage or things that he knew I didn't eat and then he would stand above me screaming to eat them you know and um so through I was very skinny uh, underfed and I was smelling a lot so that caused a lot of school problems why were you smelling were you not bathing so I would get up in the morning he went to work at five o'clock so he would drag me out of bed at five o'clock and literally scream at me the whole time you do this on purpose I know you do I never went to bed until after the assault from Uncle Pat that's when it started the hot water didn't heat up early in the morning, so you had to turn the urn on. It was like an urn thing. It was like a copper thing we had, and you turn it on, and then it comes out. And so it'd be a cold shower in the morning, so I'd be very scarcely washing, you know, while he's screaming at me. And it wasn't like a proper shower, you know, where I'm all soaked up and washed off. So even though I'd had that shower and put on my clothes, which were never washed or, you know, was, I only had the two pairs of clothes, it would. Um, I would go to school smelling, and kids used to sit next to me and go, oh, you stink. And the other thing they used to do, I don't know why, but well, I do now. I had PTSD and I didn't know that's what it was. But kids would clap and I would jump out of my skin. And yeah. kids found it funny to walk up behind me at school and clap. I just kept running away from school. I kept running away from my dad. And so they started locking me up. They put me in an institution called Warramai first in Newcastle. And um, the second time I ran away, they put me in a place called Yasma. And then the third time I ran away, I ran away with my brother. And uh, this time uh, we went to a pub and one day my brother comes up to me and he says, oh, could give me 50 cents. So what we did was when we ran away from my dad, we sold a jar of coins. Anyway, we get arrested. He asks me for 50 cents. He goes up to the counter and says, can I have a cherry white? He buys the cherry white when he opens up the cash register. My brother just grabs all the notes and runs. My brother's only 11, you know, years old. And he got chased down by these two men. And we're in the middle of the bush. But, but I got away and he didn't. But being the older brother, I, I sort of, mostly on back like so they called my brother and they caught him in a room and rang the police and i'm standing outside saying let my brother go let my brother go and they weren't bothering with me they were just getting my brother you know but they ended up taking us both to yasma and uh that's when i got sentenced we both got sentenced to go to a home called reby in Campbelltown. but then for some reason they sent me to Derek boys home which is older boys where older boys were because they wanted to separate siblings back then isn't that awful yeah how old were you by this stage i'm 13 and uh, so they convicted him to six months and they convicted me to a general, which is four and a half months to three years, depending on your behavior. Derek, I can't even begin to tell you. It was the most, it was like being in the army, Derek. You know, you marched everywhere. Like it was, it was just a horrible place to be for any child. And I mean, I was in with kids that did murders, you know, armed robberies, uh, breaking inners, and good old Glenn and I, well, I ran away from home. There was no actual crime. I just, that's my crime. Was run, it's called uncontrollable. It was literally called a charge back then, uncontrollable. So a lot of boys in there were being molested by the officers, uh, not me. I was being molested by an older boy. But, you know, the real cruel part of it was the next morning, I got up early to try and get my sheets changed, right? And as I walked back into the um, dormitory, all the kids started blowing sucks at me, which is, a, they had a language called Derek slang, 
it's different slang that they use in the home. And one of those slangs was going, which meant sucko, sucko. And like all these kids are blowing sucks at me for being raped. And I'm like, I cannot believe that that's what's going on. But, but it did. How long did you end up doing at Derek Boy's home? I did four months, four and a half months at Derek. That's good though, right? Because as you said, you could have done three years. So Absolutely. your behaviour must have been excellent. Again, you're good in these situations, aren't you? You choose, you got a, you got a brain in your head. Yeah, I've always been fairly switched on in that. But yeah, I didn't get into any trouble with Derek. And, but when I got out of Derek, my dad picked me up from Derek. Um, the day I got out, I got back to Gosford. Literally the minute we got away, I ran away again. And, um, but this time I ran away to Doc. I, I went to Doc's in Mount Druitt. Um, and I met a guy there named Brian Hubble. And I said, look, I said, I don't want to go back to Derrick or Penang or Tamworth or any of these institutions keep sending me to. And I don't want to live with my family. I'm sick of being fucking hurt, mate. They found a foster family for me that lived in Mount Druid in Blackett. The problem was that the house that they sent me to, one boy had already been, they had multiple foster kids there before. One of them had been shot dead at Emerton in 1979 by police. Then they had two other kids. They had one girl who was molested in the laundry um, so they had nine men living in that house, nine adults, sorry, in that house, three adult men in my bedroom, two of them which had prior convictions for sexual assault, for raping, and one of which was raping a two-year-old child. Oh, my God. It's the, it's the subject now of the law case. Uh, I'm taking docs to court around this. It's all, all Everything I've said, uh, the upside to what I say is it's all proven. Everything that I've been said has been found guilty in courts. That's unbelievable. That's the environment they placed you in. And um, so I only stayed there for about four months and I go back to my mum, but my mum's now shacked up with a drunk, another drunk. They kick me out and they send me back to my dad, right, who agrees to meet us at the bus terminal in Oxford Street in Sydney, right? We get there, my brother and I get off the bus, we walk behind my dad, my dad's walking and then he turns around to me and says, where are you going? You're not fucking coming with me, mate, fuck off. And, um, and so my younger brother, who I always have felt this anger at him for not coming with me, but I'm glad he didn't. But he went with my dad, and um, that's pretty much where my journey begins into King's Cross, really. So what are you, 14 or 15 at this stage? You just turned 14. Just turned 14. And I managed to get myself into this little group of street kids. I meet this beautiful girl, right, at the train station one day. Her name's Linda Kirby. That's the book that I've written that's all about. It's dedicated to her. She becomes my girlfriend, right? How old was Linda? 15. And was she also living on the streets? Yes. She was a street kid like me. I'm in the park one day with all my friends and these two little schoolgirls walk into the park and all these men just are like instantly drawn to these two little girls. And I jump in the middle of them. I said, what are you doing, mate? Get away from these little girls. And he said, oh, I'm a counsellor at the refuge in the cross here. I run a refuge down here with three other blokes before other blokes. The long story short is I won't let him touch these girls, go anywhere with these girls. And I say, I'll go. He wanted to drive them down and take me in the car too. And I said, that's not happening either. So I said, we'll walk there. And they take me to a refuge called the Homeless Children's Association on Liverpool Street, which was run by five men and a woman. The five men were pedophiles and the woman was complicit in that abuse. And yeah, my girlfriend comes into that refuge with me. The whole time I'm there, that's where I really went through a lot of abuse. Four of those five men abused me. The first time I was um, abused was by Simon. He got me drunk one night. He used to let me sit in the office playing guitar, drinking, and another pedophile named Paul Jones turns up and gives me a tablet called Mandrakes. I wake up in the morning and I'm naked in his bed. And um, I got out of bed. I got dressed really quickly. I was so embarrassed. I was so angry. 
And, uh, and I remember running downstairs and as I came out the door, I said to Grant Morris, I seen Grant first, I said, Simon raped me last night. And he looked at me horrified and he said, what? He said, oh, Glenn, can we, don't tell anyone he said, I'll meet you tonight at this cafe and we'll have a talk about it. Then that night I go and I meet Grant Morris and he's with another woman that worked at the refuge. She's a sexual assault counsellor named Annie Crow. And she sits me down and she says to me, Glenn, you're over your acting. She said, Simon loves you. And then Grant turns around and says, this is how King's Cross works. She said, don't you understand? He said, every one of us has a boy and every boy has a guy that looks after him. This is normal. And then like Simon, they, by the time it's finished, they've talked me out of doing something about it and into believing that I'm in, someone loves me, you know, someone cares about me. I've got a girlfriend, but in my head now, I'm, I'm fucking confused. Yeah. My girlfriend, one day there's a, like these men go around the street looking for a little girl to have sex with, right? So they talk Linda into coming to get some drugs, you know, and they're just going to have a party. But what actually happens is they give her heroin and then two men sexually abuse her and rape her and she dies. You know, after she died, it crushed me. And what actually happened was I ran into the two men that ran the refuge, Simon Davis and Grant Morris, in the street opposite the train station. I walked up to them and I said, one day I said, I'm going to tell the world what you did. Did you know what had happened to Linda when it happened? No, I didn't know until after she was dead. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. When the refuge ended... I started using heroin and I remember when I got to around 19 or 20, I started getting really angry. I started remembering what had happened to me and I felt gullible. I felt angry. I felt fucking, I felt violated. I felt everything you could feel that was anger and that just kept festering, you know, and festering. And I ended up meeting another beautiful girl and we had a little daughter and um, I tried to make a life for myself. I kept getting on methadone programs, but they only were six months back then. So you get, they'd put you on it and made you have it three times worse than it was. And then chuck you off it again and end up going to jail for armed robberies. Like it was insane. Like my whole life spiraled. Jail saved my life, believe it or not. When I got into jail, I suddenly had a roof over my head. Didn't have any bills. I, I didn't have to worry. I, th I fed three times a day and I had a hundred mate. Yeah. So I started training everything. I started doing a school certificate. And in my mind all the time, I'm going to write this fucking book. I'm going to tell the world what they did. The Christians, some Christian people, believe it or not, were coming into the jail uh, it ga gave me a job. So they gave me somewhere to live and a job as a carpenter, doing carpentry. And uh, so I stayed with them for about three months. And then I ended up meeting a beautiful woman and we ended up having four kids together. And in between all that, I started changing my life. But I always struggled with my addiction through it. But I went to rehab and I went. I, when I went into there, I had a counsellor and I said to him, listen, 
I said, I've never told anyone this before, but I've been through some really bad abuse and I think I need some help. It's funny because I was a heroin addict for 35 years and for much of that time I was trying to um, beat my addiction and it wasn't until I went to a rehab for 12 months and I started doing some trauma counts on the group called SAMHSA that I started to understand that my problem wasn't my addiction, my problem was my head, what was going on in the trauma that I was trying to... Yeah, you were treating that with heroin. Yeah, that's exactly right. At the same time, the police had approached me about going through the withdrawal commission, all this stuff. So I went through all that and I did 12 months of counselling, of sexual assault counselling. Then when I got out, I did more. I started going to the gym every day for the first year and then one day I went to the police and I said, you need to know, I need to tell you what's going on. I gave them that 75-page statement and I felt like when they took my statement, their, their arms folded and they're like, yeah, this is a good story, bro, but you know, it seemed a bit far-fetched. They came back to me six weeks later and they said, we've been around the country. We've spoken to probably near 100 children who have been through the cross and every single one of them told your story. Wow. Like literally word for word, for verbatim, you know, like they literally shared your story. So they said, we want to set up a task force called Strike Force Boyd and we want to know if you'd be willing to wear a wire. And I had to have this chance meeting with one of my person who abused me when I was a kid. They gave me a phone, all this information, and it took ages to get him on board. Then finally, he rings me up one night drunk and decides he wants to reminisce. I met him in the restaurant, right? And I arranged to introduce him to a detective who I told was a pedophile, who had a boy who's gone back to his mum and dad and needs to get this boy back out of their care into his care, right? And he said, I can help. I can help, he says. We walk into this restaurant. He hands me a piece of paper and slides it across the table, right? I turn it over and on it is two little 14-year-old boys that I knew from the refuge, naked, laying on their stomach. And I almost blew it right there. I fucking turned it back over, like snapped it back over and I slid it towards the detective. And then I realized what I was doing, pulled it straight back and folded it up and put it in my pocket. Then he says to this detective, he says, we targeted prepubescent children that come from broken homes that no one gave a fuck about. He says this in front of me, right? Mate, I'm telling you, I wanted to jump over and just fucking give it to him. I said, I'm going for a cigarette. I went outside and the police rang me straight away because there's coppers everywhere, you know, watching, filming, listening. They talked me through it. I also had a sexual assault counsellor that was working with me right through this process. The police rang me up and they said, Glenn, we've got him. We've fucking got him. <laughs> that was so big for me. And, um, you know, I ended up one by one. I had to go through 27 years of courts, two royal commissions to get all this right. The first two I got convicted, they got 18 fucking months. I remember standing up and saying, 18 months is, a, you know what that says to me? It says that my value is worth 18 months. I got more for a fucking armed robbery, you know, and he, he, he's fucking, so what you're saying is it's okay to rape our children, but just don't rob our banks. What a fucking joke. A third one I went through, he got two years, eight months, which was the guy that I wore the wire on. And I thought, fuck this. And then the fourth one, I got 10 year sentence on him and uh, he's in jail now. That last October, I got him put away. When I've, researched people, various people, um, like, say, the the guys who killed Anita Cobby. So Les Murphy was at the refuge. His lawyer just rang me. I was going to – Les Murphy is exactly who I was thinking about because I know that Les worked on the wall quite a bit. Yeah, well, Les also lived in the refuge. He was a master at the refuge. Monkey Jamison was also at the refuge, the guy that killed Janine Balding. He, he used to get bullied on the street. He never fitted in anywhere. But Les Murphy, he worked at Costello's. He worked on the wall. And, um, and he was being subjected to this abuse all the way through. It, there's no doubt in my mind that this is one thing's led to the other because what it does is it, it takes out the boundaries. You know, when you've been abused and been through all that stuff, the boundaries of sex become 
confused, you know, and, and I have no doubt in my mind that that's what's happened with a lot of these people who have gone on to be serious offenders. So you wrote Predator's Paradise. When did you write that? So I started writing it a decade ago, but I actually published it in 2019. Are you at the end of the legal fight against your predators now? So there's three more. Two of them have died. There's one more that we're going to find. Is that, that's the Richard West one. Um, they, the police have not been able to find him. So if anyone in Australia knows where Richard West is, please contact the Sex Crimes Parramatta Strike Force Boyd. How old would Richard West be now, roughly? So, 84, so 40 years ago, he'd be about 80. All the rest have been convicted and done with. And now at the moment, I'm going through litigation. I'm taking New South Wales to court for putting me in foster care with two pedophiles, putting me in the dairy, all these different places. They kept, Everywhere I went, their fingerprints are in it. Yes, good. Um, and I, I, they need to be held accountable. Thank you to our guest today, Glenn Fisher. There's a link in our show notes to help you buy a copy of Glenn Fisher's book, Predator's Paradise. We've shared a photo on our social media of a man New South Wales Police would like to speak to. If you have any information about this story, you can call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.